Welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. Today we'll hear a conversation with director Todd Haynes about his latest film, Dark Waters, moderated by Scott Feinberg from The Hollywood Reporter. This conversation was recorded during the film's opening weekend at the Landmark in Los Angeles. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for coming out on a Saturday night. Sure. Uh, so I wanted to begin by asking you, uh, did you know Mark Ruffalo before all of this? I didn't really know Mark. We'd met years ago, yeah. sort of in passing. I think it was around when he was working with Jane Campion on In the Cut. Um, but, oh man, I've always wanted to work with Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Come on. From and the very first performances I saw. And the nice thing here is uh, he even saved you the phone call, right? I think he initiated this? He did. He did. Mark um, sent me this project in 2017. And, you know, you got to realize this, mo- this film is based on a New York Times expose that only came out the year before, 2016. And there, there was a lot of, you know, urgency and sense that this had real relevance. And Mark joined up with participant media, and they got a first writer on the on the job, Matthew Michael Carnahan, and that was the draft that he sent me that next year. I had we had some scheduling issues, uh, so it wasn't I wasn't sure it was going to work out because he had a very specific window of time. And then he came back to me in 2018, and I hadn't really been able to stop thinking about it. And then our schedules kind of worked out. And he's been, you know, this isn't like a, a newfound interest of his, right? He's sure. been doing water, clean water activism for years and years and years, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, you, I was thinking about it. I mean, on the surface, people, well, they might not know that your personal taste in movies, uh, I was reading, you're really into whistleblower kinds of movies. I mean, you might have some <laughs> something else to work on shortly, um, <laughs> but... Uh, what what uh, <laughs> what were some of those that that you most you know thought about while making this? And then also, I mean, the reality is you've done a, a few other movies that that deal with in, the environment and and um, sort of contamination and that sort of yeah. thing. So I'll just leave. Well, yeah, um, the genre and you know the sort of best sort of brooding, sort of existential. I guess examples of this genre have always been compel- compelling to me, and I and the titles that I, the films I go back to are of course the beautiful Alan Pakula movies from the 1970s. There was a, three movies he made that are sort of called the the, the Paranoia Trilogy: Clute, Parallax View, and then All the President's Men. The third one being the only one based on a true story. All of them sort of evoking and interpreting the sort of post-Watergate paranoia of that of that era. Um, and then, you know, Mike Nichols' beautiful film with Meryl Streep, Silkwood, uh, that came out in the, in the 80s, uh, is so moving and, um, and, and beautifully focused on the sort of workplace, you know, and what a plutonium worker in a nuclear power plant slowly starts to uncover, you know, again, unelected subjects. Uh, many of these stories are about people who stumble onto these stories and start to investigate them bit by bit. And then The Insider is a film I just love by Michael Mann from the 90s. Uh, gorgeous film and a very different sort of stylistic temperament. But there's something, 
you know, there's a there's a cost that that these that these characters undergo, and I think that's where we link in and connect to what they uncover, and what and that's how what they uncover starts to really be felt by us. I think emotionally and viscerally, and you really see it in these movies, and you also see it in the way the directors of these films depict the worlds that these characters are in. So a lot of this stuff influenced the style of this movie and the look and the temperament, although these are all very different. They all approach their, their stories and materials differently. I hope she won't be mad at me for doing this, but I want to acknowledge that we have with us as well your longtime 30-plus yes. year producer, Christine Vachon. And uh, <laughs> far from heaven, so many, so many great movies you guys have done. And I want to ask you if you can talk a little bit about um, that collaboration and just, you know, use this as the example of how you two work together to make these things happen. Yeah. Well, we, Christina and I, you know, met, met in college. We have this sort of lifelong partnership. And it's the most remarkable relationship. I don't know that I would have as, as sustaining and as varied and... Uh, diverse a career as a filmmaker. There were times where she, it was Christine who was the one who wouldn't give up and trying to get financing for this film or that film. Um, and the first part, body of the, the sort of, you know, the first half, three quarters of the body of my work is stuff that I wrote and developed myself. And that was a unique, always a unique process because every film is a different uh, process of putting together financing, of trying to find where and how we're going to get these movies made. And none of them were following necessarily conventional um, models of the kind of movies that people were seeing around us, and, and not even necessarily the films they were expecting from me from what I had done before. So it was always a challenge, and it took an incredible kind of persistence on Christine's part and a trust that we that gets played out each time. Later in my career, I started to consider and open up the door to projects that I hadn't been developing and writing myself. Which was the first? I'm trying to uh, the first was, uh, well, Carol. Yeah, right. yeah, then Wonderstruck and this. It's only really been the last, the last three films. Mildred Pierce was an adaptation from a novel, but I wrote it with my a partner, a writing partner in uh, Portland. Um, and that's that's been a whole incredibly you know invigorating, nourishing experience as a filmmaker, and uh, and it does it means that you. It, it's funny people ask me, do you feel really differently about scripts that you write versus scripts that you receive? There's a certain point where it's only a it's a blueprint for what the film is going to be, whether you wrote it yourself and you're intensely connected to that process or not. And you kind of have to learn how to discard even your own, especially your own work in that way, and take on the physical challenges and the conceptual challenges and the narrative challenges and keep being in the moment, I guess, as the process unfolds from what you write and imagine to what you end up shooting and to what you're cutting and to how audiences start to relate to that as you show them versions of the film. So, Someone else who you, it might be the second longest collaboration, I'm not sure, uh, going back to Far From Heaven, so 17 years, uh, your cinematographer. Can you talk about him? Yeah. Great cinematographer. Ed Lockman is sort of a piece of American walking cinematic history in his own um, incredible body of work, his, uh, which, you know, and his influences by Bertolucci and 
uh, the tutelage that he sort of enjoyed under Mark, Mark, Mark Mueller, uh, Fassbinder, um, Godard, you know, and then bringing that sort of European art cinema sensibility into the American films that he shot from the late 80s till now. He shot Aaron Brockovich, which comes up, of course, when people talk about this movie, and it's a real, it's a pivot point. But we tried to do something quite differently than with this one. One last behind-the-scenes person I want to mention, just because um, I think it's a, a quite an amazing contrast of work within one year or so. Um, your production designer for the first time, I believe, is Hannah Beekler, who just won the Oscar for Black Panther. Totally, you know, it just shows how creative and different uh, people can do. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I, I understood that the, the big mandate here was to make the two worlds sort of subconsciously very different for people, right? The world of corporate craziness that... Ruffalo's characters in, but then the Bill Camp world, right? It's right. how are we visually, visually that the mandate was you got to do some things to, and costume, just obviously costumes, but even just the look of the film had to be markedly different, right? Well, actually, no. I would say that the challenge for me was actually how to bring commonality uh, across the different sort of economic um, settings of the film. Because what you really learn in a, in a story like this, and, and this is so true in this film, is the interdependence that was necessary. Um, and the fact that there's something wrong in all of these places. You feel it in the temperature, the color temperature of the film, the chill of the film, the grimness of the uh, color timing of the film. We, were, we remarked on the fact that that sort of division of class lines that, that separates people, even people within the world of Taft, and how much Mark's character himself feels sort of destabilized, you know, within the status and the pedigree of his partners. He did not have a fancy law degree from Yale or Harvard. He had one from Ohio State. He had his background in, in West Virginia. You know, these were things that, of course, lent him um, awareness to this, where the origin of this, this, this contamination began and gave him, made him this unlikely person to listen to Wilbur Tennant for the first time in Wilbur's um, life. And uh, so it was really about like trying to find commonality in a sense that brought all these worlds together. The crazy thing about Hannah is that she grew up in farm country outside of Dayton, Ohio. She went to college in Cincinnati. She knew more about all of these places than any of us did. And you did shoot in the and we area. Shot, we shot in the area, and we literally shot in the Tafla offices themselves in the film, wow. and it offered such, yeah, an incredible sense of spatial division and light and shadow in these 45-degree corridors and those triangular conference rooms and those glass partitions with the frosted yeah. stripes, you know. All of this stuff came from the actual place. So for you going into this, and again, I think it was a pretty tight time frame to do this, what, what was the most daunting aspect going into it for you? The thing that you felt you, know, you most needed to get right and, and it was gonna be a, a challenge? With a story like this that has such a complicated legal narrative that you can't possibly dramatize every bit of, it's about condensing 
picking your spots, deciding where you're spending time and feeling the grueling day-to-day -day specificity of what, what Rob is doing. And in some places, kind of losing him a little bit. Like he kind of gets buried alive in that, in, when all of this discovery comes and he's surrounded by all the boxes. And then we kind of re-find him again when he emerges with the story that he's been spending so much time piecing together, finally presents it to his wife in the middle of the night in the kitchen table. And that's sort of a center hub of the storytelling where this remarkable and shocking story is unearthed and he presents it finally to Sarah, to Tom Turp, to Victor Garber's character, uh, Phil Donnelly, and to us. And we're ready for it at that time, and you need it, you know? And then it's about what do you do about it, and what is the legal strategy that evolves from that. So just balancing that much information and wanting to keep an audience engaged in something that could, you know, definitely be, this is all third-hand information a guy's going through. It's hundreds of thousands of documents from the past. He's not a journalist interviewing people at the door, you know, where you see their, their narratives in front of you. So. We had to, and he's an emotionally guarded, distant, blocked up kind of guy. Well, that's where I wanted to kind of go next because, you know, there are characters that, um, or there are roles that people play that, you know, uh, they're described this time of year as awards bait where they're so showy and they're so flat. This is a understated um, but still very powerful performance. So as somebody who... Um, really gets great work at, in collaboration with so many actors. Um, looking at him up close for the first time, what is it that makes him so good? Ruffalo. Yeah. Mark, because Mark just spent all this time with Rob. We all did. Rob was our chaperone through the entire process of this movie and made himself so utterly available to us during this shoot, during the pre-production and the research. Uh, to begin with, and then, but he was around through almost half of the entire shoot. Every other day, he was there. Sarah, his wife, would come to visit, and Mark just studied him and watched that physical sort of shape and the sort of coiled up um, posture and the jowl and the lack of smiling. It's it's such a, so antithetical to Mark Ruffalo. Um, and Mark was it admitted, admitted to me, at times he was like, is the audience going to stay with this guy? Does it, don't we need that moment where you exclaim from the rafters your, your rage, you know? And, I, and we, we would talk about it, and I said, no, I think that the restraint is dramatic and suspenseful, and the moments of discovery that are measured along the way have more meaning and impact when you're kind of waiting for them and you don't see them coming, but you see it a slow boil going on through the course of the film. And I, and I think that, you know, I think that, that uh, has been effective. The person who I didn't think, you know, there's a lot of great um, acting in this movie, but the one who in some ways blew, away, blew me away the most was Bill Camp, because this guy, I don't even think people realize how many times they've seen him in just, right. just the last few years, because he's like a chameleon. Um, I was, I think, just, Recently, two or three different TV series, Looming Tower, a bunch of different stuff, movies. Um, the guy is unbelievable. So, and I wasn't even sure watching. I thought it might. I hadn't really read much before I went in. I wasn't even sure it was him because he's yeah. uh, he's changed so much in this. But just what uh, you know him. He's a New York. 
theater guy, right? Is that how you know him? Yeah, I mean, I knew I knew him from his work. Yeah. I hadn't known Bill personally. Yeah. Uh, Laura Rosenthal, who I, who's cast all my movies since Velvet Goldmine in 1998. And I, you know, we start kind of honest brokering, like considering name actors against character actors, against theater actors, and and there was not real pressure from participant for to cast name people. So we had a freedom to really uh, pick our places. And, and Anne Hathaway was an unexpected choice for a role like this because she brings expectations because of, of her incredible strength in films and her career. But we wanted that strength in, in, and that kind of sense of uh, a balancing out against Rob in this movie, in the, in the wife character. She is a force, um, Sarah. And, and yet there was, and, and that's sort of how they survived. That's how Rob was possible, made it possible to do this, that relationship. They each play respective roles that are essential in that marriage and how those kids were raised and how that household is run. But all these people, and Bill just committed himself to as the real people who were around us and what, who we had to speak for and describe Wilbur was his brother, Jim Tennant, first and foremost, and Della, his wife. Jim appears in the background of the diner scene in the movie. And Jim is this incredible, he survived all this. I mean, he worked at DuPont digging ditches, and he was starting to get unhealthy, and it persuaded him to sell his part of the land, which became the landfill, which became the source of the, of the uh, contamination. But uh, Bill, we also have Wilbur's tapes. And the cows, the, the footage of the cows that you see are from Wilbur's tapes, and he narrates them. And so we have his voice, and we have deposition uh, footage of, of Wilbur as well. So Bill just immersed himself in this guy, and, and we, you know, we just wanted to respect who he was. He had an incredible stubbornness. He believed that justice should be served. He was not going to yield. He didn't want to settle with DuPont for the money. He wanted the truth to come out. He didn't want to sign a non-disclosure agreement over this story. Um, but, and he didn't live to see the fact that the truth did come out and that Mark Robb's efforts paid off and have changed, really, the reputation of DuPont, of clearly the, the brand of Teflon, and alerted us to what really happened. So one last question for me, and then Fitzari will take a few from the audience. So here we are. It's almost 2020. The EPA is basically, as, they, as you show in the film, working for, for the other guys. Um, what is it that you would like people to leave here thinking or doing differently? Is, there, is it, you know, we don't want to just throw our hands up. That's not what Rob did. Um, but it is a pretty bleak situation still. You know, what I think the film shows us is that, you know, um, Obviously, it takes individuals to stand up to systems of power. It takes incredibly courageous people like Rob. This has been true for all sort of social justice movements. It starts with people. And so that's a message that we can all take from this film. Of course, the breadth of the contamination is so overwhelming on a global scale that there's a tremendous sense of despair that hangs over the film. And even his wins at the end, which are so hard fought and so long waited for, are leave you feeling ambivalence and a sense that the world is, you know, complicated 
And yet, what do we do? We have to like learn and be alerted to these kinds of situations and take the steps that we can and start to change a regulatory system that is completely yielded to the interests of big business and industry and a government that is basically there, that is captive to, you know, basically, you know, it's not even like, I mean, when you think of like the uh, environmental, um, uh, air air uh, standards, the yeah. CAFE standards in California State, that the Trump administration literally tried to keep corporations from adhering to, even when corporations themselves, when the audio industry itself wanted to honor them. There are times when industry appreciates regulation because it's also, they gotta sell their products to the public who are interested in their in their health and safety, right? And in clean air and in clean water and in, basic uh, human, you know, basic rights and, and protections. And, and we have a government that is interfering even in that process when regulation wor can work. So we're facing a critical, you know, year. And, and this film tells you the story of, uh, you know, it, it describes systemic problems that go beyond, you know, this specific story or, or how, the, you know, a, a, a law firm uh, is you know defending and protecting industry, and it decides to, to shift sides and take on power the systems of power. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's uh, look. They just testified. Mark, Rob, Bucky Bailey, were, they were at in on the House in a in a subcommittee environmental subcommittee for PFOA testifying on on the PFOS situation right now. This happened just last week. Mark said that the climate in DC is toxic today, but he also felt that there was incredible promise for legislative change and that people are, are aware of how dangerous these forever chemicals are. It's an entire family of chemicals that are continuing to be produced. So there's a lot that we're you know, riding on and taking from this story and trying to apply to what's going on. Do we have some audience questions? Go ahead. Um, I'm wondering about the preparation process, especially because it was someone else's script. Like, um, what what do you do to like, even though it's a blueprint, to sort of make sure you're getting the intention right, the intention in like the tone and you're directing the actors. And, yeah. The preparation, did you say? With this with this film, the first draft of the script that came to me was was something that was done fairly quickly and then Matthew got busy directing a film of his own. When I finally figured out that I could make this film with, with, with Mark's schedule and we could line up, um, I brought a writer on. And we went to Cincinnati and we met all of these people firsthand and we sort of began anew talking to Rob and talking to the tenants and talking to the Kigers and talking to to Tom Turp at uh, Taft Law. And uh, we really, and, and within, I would say, two months from that initial research trip, Mario Correa, the writer I brought on, had a, new, had a new draft of the script that I think got in deeper to what the conflicts really were, Rob's conflicts within Taft, uh, the, the isolation that a character like this feels, 
the challenge of pursuing a case like this over so many years and the impact that it takes on people's families and their home lives. And that was true for the tenants in Parkersburg and it was true for Rob in Cincinnati. Um, but we just decided to commit ourselves to the people who had sort of given us this new in, these new insights and surrounded the production with, with them. So they were around um, at every state, at every stage. And we shot in Cincinnati, and we did second unit photography in, in West Virginia. So it was really just listening to the people who were there and letting them keep us grounded in specificity and what was really, what was really happening. I realize that the clock has run out on us, so thank you for coming. Thank you, Todd. Thank you so Appreciate much, you guys. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. If you want to hear more conversations with filmmakers about the latest independent, foreign, and documentary films opening at Landmark Theatres, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit our podcast website at landmarktheaters.podbean.com. You can also check out our YouTube channel for videos of Q&As and other exclusive content. See you next time.